Uh, if you are a visitor with us, my name is Jason Williams. I have the honor and privilege of uh, pastoring here at the church as lead pastor. I serve among a uh, body of elders uh, and, uh, and honored to do so. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, the last two verses of chapter 5, and then the rest of our time will be in Romans chapter 6 today. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, grab a, a Bible from under the seat around you, in front of you, if you don't have one. And, uh, and also, your, uh, your uh, Connect Guides have sermon notes inserted, and so that's hopefully for your benefit. But also, if you're in a life group, just want to remind you that that's where the material will be coming from, discussion will be coming from those notes next weekend for life groups meetings. So uh, you may want to hang on to that throughout the week uh, to continue working through what the Lord speaks to you in reflection and uh, be prepared to go into life groups to have a fantastic conversation about how God's word is, is working in your life to give life. Um, we're going to be talking about something uh, this morning that is uh, one of the least favorite topics within the church as a whole, uh, the topic of sin. A couple reasons I would just give for our hesitancy to talk about sin in general. Uh, one is that sin is inherently shameful, meaning that along with sin comes right behind it a sense of shame. From day one that sin entered the world, there has been shame closely attached to sin. And earlier on in this series, uh, in Romans chapter 2, Paul even went in and explained that those who don't even have the Ten Commandments are aware of this, that there is this uh, universal understanding of morality that reflects the character of God, that even if you don't have the Ten Commandments and you murder somebody in cold blood, you're going to feel shameful for that, even if you don't have the commandments to tell you you did something wrong, and then continue going on from there, right? If you take another man's wife, whether you have the Ten Commandments or not, uh, whether you've ever been in church or not, there's a sense of shame that comes along with that sin. So sin is inherently shameful. One of the reasons we don't like to talk about it in church or in life in general, right? Because we've, we've, we've all sinned. And who wants to bring up something that's going to also bring with it a sense of shame? I think another reason why we don't uh, want to talk about sin, though, has to do with how we deal with the topic of sin in the church. And that we, um, if we're not careful, we'll continue to heap up the burden of shame, add to the burden of shame by teaching things that aren't necessarily consistent with God's word in the gospel. Things like, you profess to be a Christian, therefore there should be no sin in your life. So not what the Bible says. Clearly, John, the apostle John will say that if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar and you make God out to be a liar. There is sin in your life. That's why we need the gospel. But what the gospel has come to do for us in terms of setting us free, okay? So we're going to talk about that this morning, what the gospel has done in terms of our struggle with sin. But we're also going to talk very honestly about where we still are. Um, the, the idea that, uh, the, that the, we're going to hear, read about in Romans 6 is that sin ultimately before Christ was our master. And that's not a, a, a fun thought for any of us to think that we were in bondage to or in slavery to any man, anything. But the Apostle Paul is going to say in Romans 6 that we clearly were slaves to sin. We were in bondage to, slavery to, shackled to sin before Christ. As I was reading this passage this week and thinking through that um, illustration from Paul, an analogy... Um, then I thought, I thought about the history of America and, and some of the things that were true about slavery here in America, that even when slavery was abolished, many men and women who had formerly been in slavery didn't know how to operate as free men and women. And so uh, that was for a couple of reasons. One, they weren't set up to succeed, right? No formal education, no formal job training other than being a slave. They were just said, okay, you're free to go. In addition to that... I think as humans, we grow uh, comfortable with what is familiar, even when what is familiar is painful. And so for a number of reasons, the, in, in slavery in America, not all the slaves who were set free stayed free. Some returned back to slavery by their own willful choice. One, they didn't know necessarily maybe how to succeed as free men and women. But two, sometimes what is painful and familiar is more comfortable than what is unfamiliar. We see this even in the nation of Israel. They had been in slavery in Exodus for over 400 years. When they were set free and they came up against an obstacle, one of their first responses was, why don't we just go back? 
I would rather die there in what is familiar than to be out here struggling in unknown, unfamiliar territory, not knowing where my next meal is going to come from. Right? I'd rather go back to what is familiar. We see this also over and over again in, in forms of abuse. We see people return back to abusive situations. We'll talk a little bit more about why that happens later on. But ultimately, Paul's plea here in our struggle with sin is to, to open our eyes to realize that we are free men and women now in Christ. We've been set free from the bondage and from the, uh, the slavery of sin now to walk. Sin no longer has a reigning sovereign power over us. And we've been set free from the penalty, but there is something clear that we will see in the way Romans uh, unfolds is this, that we're still under the influence of sin, which means there's still a struggle for many of us. And so the way this works is in chapter 6, Paul is going to walk us through a theological basis for our struggle with sin. How do we we combat this? Chapter 7, Paul is going to primarily share his personal struggle with sin, how he's still under an influence, even though he's no longer under the power and the reigning authority of sin, there's still a struggle very real in his life. And then chapter 8, which we'll get to next Sunday, begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So even though there is still a very real struggle going on, and we understand that theologically, and even though we'll look into Paul's life and see an example of that, why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? And why don't I do the things that I really want to do? He's, he's talking about that inward struggle. We're going to land next week on the security we have in Christ and what is true about us in the midst of our struggle. So we're going to begin in chapter 5, starting in verse 20. The last two verses of chapter 5 will set us up for 6. First word, now. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Okay, and so if we're not careful... We'll, we'll take this verse out of context and we'll simply think that when God gave the law, it made sins increase on the face of the earth. If we put it in context to the letter as Paul's writing it, what I believe Paul is getting to, an increased awareness of, an increased understanding of our violation. So without the law, right, when we killed somebody, we felt shame for it and guilty for it. But once the law came and explained to us why, we were more aware, right, an increasing awareness and understanding of our sin. And so he begins with those words. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So chapter 6 and 7 into the beginning of chapter 8, Paul is dealing with this topic of sin. I love where he begins. I love that he begins by saying, To us, it's safe to have this conversation. We're going to talk about sin. But where sin, right, increases, where sin abounds, guess what? God's grace abounds all the more. So we can have an honest conversation about sin in the context of the good news of the gospel. Right? And so there's a a place in Christian living and Christian growing for us to be honest about our struggle with sin Under the pretense of what? The gospel that has set us free from the penalty of it, set us free from the bondage of it, has declared us not condemned, and we still wrestle. All right. If you're taking notes, I want to just make this point. The riches of God's grace are more abundant than the depth of my sin. The riches of God's grace are more abundant than the depth of or the debt, you can say it either way, actually, debt or depth of my sin. And here's a point I would make. When we as Christians avoid the conversation about sin and then therefore avoid an honest confession of our struggle with it, when we avoid talking about sin, or specifically our sin, what we ultimately are avoiding talking about is the glorious work of Christ on the cross on our behalf, setting us free from the bondage of sin. That's how we need to think about that. It's not biblical to have a conversation about sin without also having the conversation about God's remedy for sin. I mean, the most glorious work done in the Bible is the work that Jesus did on the cross, arguably, right? And so if I avoid talking about my need for it, I never get around to talking about the solution. And so if we're not careful, we'll avoid that conversation altogether. Even in our personal struggle with sin, I just don't, I'm not comfortable. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to act like it's not even there. Ultimately, what we're avoiding is Talking about the glorious work of Christ on the cross. 
his remedy, his solution for, his redemption of our lives for our sins. So Romans 6 begins then with this beautiful rhetorical question that maybe you yourselves have even asked. What shall we say then? Okay, so if where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And it's from, right? So we're reading this and we kind of, kind of feel Paul making an obvious statement here. And then he follows that up with, by no means. And in my translation, that has an explanation point at the end of it. And whether that, that wasn't actually there grammatically, but you can definitely feel that from Paul. So we're going to have a conversation about sin, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Let me just deal with a question that's probably in your minds right now. Well, how about we just go on sinning so that grace would abound? And he says, by no means. You were set free from the bondage of sin, but you were not set free to live however you want. And so hence, the conversation flows about our struggle with sin. By no means, verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And I would, I would argue this, that there's a difference between struggling with sin and living in it. The significant difference. There's a, different things, there's a difference between being identified by your sin, right? I'm an idolater. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer, right? There's a difference between that and then being a Christ follower whose identity is in Christ who's still struggling with a sin. There's a difference. And he, said, he asked the question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he rolls into an explanation of what he means by dying to sin. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now he's using baptism here in, in, a, in more of a, um, a loose form. He's not just specifically talking about water. He's talking about those of us who have been immersed in Christ. are now in Christ. Okay, So in no way is Paul bringing up an argument that you have to get wet to be saved. Ideally, what, I, what he's explaining here is what he talks about in Ephesians 1, where he says, those who are in Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And now he's talking about it here. We've been baptized like the same way we go into the water. We're now in Christ. We're submerged in the goodness of Christ. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. There's going to be a contrast between the old life and now the newness of life. We now walk in. If you're taking notes, we're going to, let me go ahead and fill in the blank and then we'll talk about it. My struggle to overcome sin in my life, okay, so let's just make this personal now. Every person in the room, right, if I ask for a show of hands, should raise your hands if you are currently struggling with sin. Christians and non-Christians alike. We are still struggling on some level with sin. My struggle to overcome sin in my life begins with, I love this, this is what the gospel says to us, an understanding of what Christ has already accomplished on my behalf, not what I can accomplish for him. Fundamentally different. Fundamentally different. So, one of the mistakes, I think, as a church culture that we do in teaching about sin is we go straight to what's called imperatives or commands. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. What is remarkable about the way the Apostle Paul deals with the topic of sin is how he starts with what we call indicatives, identity of who you are and what has been accomplished for you. It's going to be several verses before he ever gets to a command. What happens if we just start with commands, the commandments? We just heap up more shame, more burden, more reasons why you'll never make God happy, why you'll never succeed as a Christian. If we just start with the imperatives, with the commands, right? So Paul doesn't start there. Doesn't start there in this letter. Doesn't start there in Ephesians as well. So here's what we need to understand. My struggle to overcome sin in my life. Does God want you to overcome sin? He does. He absolutely does. But it begins with an understanding of what Christ has already accomplished on my behalf, not what I can accomplish for him. Fundamentally different. So God isn't waiting for me to muster up enough strength and gumption and, and get my adrenaline together and just go conquer this sin. What God is going to do instead, in just a moment, he's going to command us back to the cross 
back to what we already know and what has already been accomplished on our behalf. That is where we as Christ's followers find the victory to overcome sin. And you know this. You do. Every one of us knows this. There has been a sin in your life that you have tried to conquer on your own strength if you're a Christian. There has been. Right? And you know it by your own strength. Right? You come down to the altar. You confess. I promise God I won't do this again and I mean it this time. Only what? To come back in the next week full of shame because you went out and did the very thing you said you wouldn't do. What is that? Why isn't that working? Because if we're not careful, we will fight the struggle of sin based on our own strength, based on what we can accomplish for God, rather than resting in what he has accomplished for us. My battle with sin doesn't begin with mustering up internal strength to make up my mind to not sin. That's not where it begins. The foundational tactic for our struggle with sin is our faith in what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Think about this. Back to Genesis 3, the beginning of your Bible, where sin enters into the world. At sin's entrance into the world, God designated that death would be the inevitable result. Remember that? Adam, if you sin, you will die. Inevitably. That's what will follow with sin. So when we think about the human experience, as, um, as smart as we are in 2014, as, right, as capable and as able as we've become at overcoming things, obstacles, illnesses, diseases, right? Just basic civil cleanliness and culture, all the things we put in place, technology. Many of you can pull out your smartphone right now and turn the lights on or off in your home, right? We've accomplished a lot here on earth in terms of having dominion over the earth, but the two things that we cannot overcome on our own strength is sin and death. And the two are closely married together, right? There is that moment where as human beings, a person passes from this life to the next and we throw our hands in the air and say, there's nothing else I can do to fix this. I've tried everything. And it happens quickly. With every person who passes from this life to the next, we are reminded we cannot conquer sin and death. So our battle, our struggle with sin begins with our remembering, our understanding that Jesus has fought the battle of sin and death and won. That's why the gospel includes his death and his resurrection. When you think of his death, we're reminded that, oh, he, he died on my behalf. That's my sin on him. His resurrection, though, is his power over sin and death to say, I have accomplished what you cannot. I've overcome. There's a beautiful um, series of prayers in Ephesians. And when you study them on a theological level, um, there's, there's, it's full of just this warmth from Paul's heart to the church in Ephesus. But there's some theological things that he says that blow my mind. And one of those prayers is in Ephesians 3. And he's He's, in, he's praying for Christians. Okay, So I want you to listen to what Paul is praying over the church who already know about the cross. Look at what he says. This is Ephesians 3. I'm going to start in 14. If you want to turn there, you can, or just jot down that address and come back this week and read this. He says, for this reasons I bow my knees before the Father. I'm praying for you. Verse 15. From every family in heaven and on earth is named. From whom every family on earth on in heaven and on earth is name 16 that according to the riches of his glory sound familiar we talked about the riches of his grace the riches of his glory he may grant you something to be strengthened in power we need that right in our struggle with sin we need strength we need to be strengthened in power he says through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith wait a second i thought Christ was already dwelling in our hearts so he goes on to explain that you, being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may have strength to what? To defeat sin, to fight the battle. Look at what he's praying we would have strength to do. To comprehend. To understand something. To get something very deeply. With all the saints, what is the, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know what? The love of Christ, you already know about it, but that you would know it more deeply 
that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, we are to grow perpetually, consistently in our knowledge of what we already know. So our struggle with sin begins with, right, what Christ has accomplished on the cross on our behalf. Our continual struggle with sin is fueled by a deepening in our understanding of, a meditating on, a thinking of. What Paul's going to command us to do is to consider this. Verse 5. Back to Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be, what? Enslaved to sin. Now if you interpret that as struggle with sin, you're going to completely hate chapter 7. Because that's not what he's saying. There is still a very real struggle with sin, but we've been set free from our slavery to sin. Verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You're taking notes. It's important for us as Christ followers to remind ourselves, in Christ I have been set free from the bondage of sin to walk in a new life. Does the new life include hardship? Yes. Does the new life include, at times, suffering? Yes. Does the new life at times include a very real and present struggle with sin? Yes. According to the gospel and according to the apostle Paul and God's word, Now, there's a significant difference between complacency and struggle, right? That's where Paul began. How about we just become complacent? Do whatever we want because where sin increases, grace is going to abound. He says, I don't think so. There's a significant difference between being complacent to or towards or taking advantage of, if you will, because that's what that mindset does. I'm just going to take advantage of the cross. I'm going to take it for granted. There's a difference between taking the cross for granted and still struggling very honestly with sin. Two different things. It's why he starts there, I think. Like, by no means, don't you think that this is anyway gives you permission to be complacent towards God's glorious work on the cross. But there's still room to struggle, to wrestle with sin in our lives. We've been set free from bondage and slavery to sin. The second thing is this. My new life in Christ is rooted in. It's an important word. It's rooted in what he has already done, and who I already am. As I continue the process, which we'll end there today, talking about the process, of being conformed into the image of Christ. It's where he's going to end up in Romans 8, talking about all of us who've been justified ultimately are being conformed into the image of Christ. We're we're being conformed into holiness. And the fact that there is a process of confirmation means what? We're not already there yet. We are being conformed from glory to glory, from struggle to struggle, from victory to victory, day by day, into the image of his son, Jesus. And there's a process. My new life in Christ is rooted in what he has already done and who I already am as I continue the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus. One of the things that Paul is going to bring up, and we'll look at an example from Romans 7 in just a second, is that Um, before Christ and after Christ, if you think in those terms, before I became a Christian, now that I am a Christian, something changes about the way we view the law. Okay, So he said earlier that where uh, where the law law came to increase, and and as I said, increase in awareness of the very real sin that's already there. Before you have the solution of Christ, the burden becomes heavier and heavier. And the task of pleasing God becomes more and more impossible. And the harder we try, the further it seems like we fall from holiness. But afterwards, in Christ, something changes about the way we see the law. We now see it no longer as a curse, but now as a blessing that gives life. Something to pursue, something to strive for. Paul's going to say it this way. Let's, uh, if you've got your Bibles open, let's flip to chapter 7 and just listen to Paul's very honest struggle with sin. We're going to start um, in verse 7, just where he talks about the perspective on the law. He says, what shall then we say? This is Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? 
that the law is sin? By no means. The law isn't sin. Yet if, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Right? We talked about that. So the law came ultimately to be a, a lantern or a light to illuminate the sin that was already there, hiding and crouching in darkness. I would not have known about sin if it weren't for the law, for I would... Uh, and then he talks about coveting. Look at what he says. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see where the law brought an awareness to what was already there? Verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I, once, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. He's saying the law before I knew Christ was a curse. Might as well just call it death. Because in the law, I saw everything wrong with me, and I saw everything that I couldn't do to fix it. I was as good as dead. Verse 11, for sin, seizing the oppor- an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Verse 12, so that, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So sin sees an opportunity through the law to shackle us and to condemn us. But Paul says, now that I'm in Christ, I don't see the law that way anymore. And then he's going to roll into his own struggle with sin. Track with me, verse 15. Paul just says, can I stop for a minute and be honest? Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Because he doesn't want you to forget that Christ is in you and Christ is good, but in my flesh nothing good dwells. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do, not, if I do <laughs> what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And Paul is saying this thing, like I, there's a very str- real struggle in my life. I like how he words it in um, Corinthians on a different topic. He talks about those of us who have the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay. And he describes that our human flesh, along with its own will that's bent towards selfishness, is like the jar of clay. But inside we have something of great treasure and value. And, and what is in us is actually renewing us glory by glory, day by day. It's making us alive. It's redeeming the flesh that we live within. And in this passage, I believe Paul is describing that very real struggle. The law itself isn't sin. The law is good. But there's a very real struggle in my flesh that's still present here. All right. Ultimately, there's a process. Verse 8. We're about to get to our first command in this passage, okay? So he hasn't commanded anything. All he's done is remind you of what Christ has done on the cross and reminded you and I of who we are in him, okay? Verse eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, that's past tense, it's already happened, we believe, that's a key word there, we believe that we will also live with him. This is where faith comes in, okay? So if I look at my struggle with sin and I then declare I'm not saved because I still have sin in my life, I am not living by faith. I'm living according to what I can measure, what is tangible. But that's a really important word here. So it's not just that we look at the cross, at the glorious work that Jesus has done on our behalf, but we look at it and we believe, trust, and we have faith. That even though there's a very real struggle at times, right? The evidence looks sometimes like it's stacked against us. You ever had one of those days? Like, I feel less like a Christian than I Right? Then I should. Like, I feel more like a person who's never met Jesus. There's a very real struggle going on. But in faith, we do what? We say, no, I'm not going to rest in. I'm not going to stand. I'm not going to believe in anything contrary to what the gospel says. I believe in the finished work of Christ, that I trust it, and it is working on me and in me to produce something good. Verse 
We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Here comes your first command, Christians. You ready? This is is your command to defeat sin in your life. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That was a command. Paul just gave you a command, and your command was to remember, to take into account, to think deeply upon what has already been done on your behalf. Matter of fact, the Greek word gets probably more literally defined this way, to keep a mental record of events for the sake of some future action or to take into account. You and I just got commanded to remember the cross and its future effect on our lives. I'm in my very real struggle with sin. What do I do as a Christ follower? Do I work harder? Step one, I remember what has already been done. And I'm obeying God in that when I simply remember what Christ has done and who I am in him. If you're taking notes, in my struggle with sin, the Bible instructs me to remember who I already am. We're going to take communion in just a little bit, and we're going to see that Jesus issues this same command to us, to remember who I already am. By faith, I am what? I am dead to sin, and I'm alive in Christ. And some days, it really looks like it. It really, really does. Praise God. Some days, it looks like I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to Christ. But there are other days, right? There are other days in a very real way. I'm struggling with the old nature. I'm struggling with the sin that won't seem to go away. And in that moment, what do I do? I believe what the Bible says about me, that I'm dead to sin and I'm alive in Christ. I oftentimes will use this... uh, this illustration or analogy in counseling, and, and I've even used it in here, you've probably heard me say this, that it's, it's similar to cutting the head off a snake, right? I mean, everybody who grows up in Texas knows if you want to kill a snake, you need to cut his head off, right? But what happens to the snake right after you cut his head off? It still looks alive, right? You pick it up, it'll still wrap itself around your arm, it'll wiggle and twitch. I mean, for hours, right? A snake will look alive, even though if you really take into account what has happened and you realize the head has been severed from the body, it's as good as dead, And what I'm seeing is not a snake that's alive, but I'm seeing a snake that is becoming more of what it already is, dead. This, I believe, holds true for us in Christ. When you trust in the work that Christ has done for you on your behalf, it's like severing the head of sin. Sin is as good as dead. The day in, day out, very real struggle is sin dying, right? Sin still acting like it's alive on its way out. If you're in Christ, you are dead to sin, and you are alive in Christ. And we're commanded to remember and believe that. Let's move on to chapter chapter 6, verse 12 in Romans. We're going to get to another command here, and this one's very practical and helpful. So we started with the foundational, what I'm rooted in. Now I want some practical help. What can I practically do in my struggle with sin? He says this. Let not sin, this is verse 12, therefore reign in your mortal body. Okay, that's the trick here. We don't want to live in it. We don't want to give ourselves to it. We don't want to let sin reign in our mortal body to make you obey its passions. And that's interesting. I don't know if we all oftentimes think about our, our struggle with sin that way. That when we give in, we're obeying it. You thought about that? I always think about it like even in terms of like chocolate. Like if I have this craving for chocolate and I pull over on the side of the road, I get off the course that I was on. It wasn't part of my plan. I pull into a store to go buy some chocolate. I just obeyed my craving for chocolate in a very simple way, right? Not saying if you eat chocolate, you're sin. Using that as an illustration, right? When we give into the cravings of the flesh, ultimately what we're saying is, okay, I'll obey you. This is what you're asking of me today. This is what you're telling me will produce happiness. I know it won't but I'm going to obey you anyway. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to, talk about a, he's going to use the word present and talk about what you're doing in that moment is you're presenting yourselves again as slaves to sin that you've been set free from. Look at what he says. 
Verse 13, do not present, that's a command, yourself or your members. Again, he's talking about flesh. Chapter 7 uses the same word. The members of your body, the the capacity to have a passion of your flesh. Don't, Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But instead, another command, present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Right? And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. What is he saying to me in that moment? Well, if I go back to sin and present myself again, it's almost like I have to pick the handcuffs off the floor and put them back on my hands again, but they don't walk. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man who's alive in Christ, walking as though I'm shackled and in bondage and dead. But he says that sin will not rule over you if you're in Christ. That doesn't keep you from acting like it, but it won't. The word to present yourself, I think, helps us practically, okay? So let's just talk through what that means. The word present in this passage means these things. So think about this in your struggle with sin. To place close by, okay? To set something. So if I took my Bible and I set it right here or even set it here, I'm setting it close by. I'm presenting it to myself. To to place close by or to place close at hand where I can get to it, hand's length. I don't have my hands on it, but I can get to it if I need to. To stand next to and to bring into one's fellowship or intimacy. So there's a practical function, but there's also a heart function here as well. That when I keep something close by, it means something to me. Practically, I can grab it, but ultimately I'm keeping it close because it means something to me. That's the word present here. So he says then what? Don't present yourselves to sin like that. Right? Keeping sin close by. Or standing close to it. Because when you do so, you're saying that it means something to you. It's a very practical understanding of our struggle with sin. In, uh, in Romans 13, just a few verses from Romans 13 that bring up something I want us to see. Um, Paul is calling the church to awakening. So I feel like they're probably in some sense of complacency or stupor or taking for granted the work of Christ. He calls them to an awakening. And in verse 12 of Romans 13, he says, The night is far gone. It's time to wake up. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. What is he talking about? Let's walk according to the holiness of God. Not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. I love verse 14. But instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of getting dressed with sin, keeping it close by, keeping it at hand's length, put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's a very, very real part of our struggle with sin is us making provisions for it, keeping it close by, keeping it at hand's length. And we lie to ourselves and say, I'm not touching it. Right? It's a very practical part of our struggle with sin. I'm not touching it. And yet when we feel this passion welling up in our flesh says, go touch it. It'll make you happy. Go touch it. It'll make you feel good. Right? Go grab it. What do we do? We've presented ourselves to it. We've made a provision for the sin. We so easily just pick it right back up. Ultimately, what I feel like Paul is explaining to us and commanding us to is don't give control back to sin. Don't give control back to sin by presenting yourself to it. But then he uses the same word in the command to present ourselves to God. So everything that applied about keeping close at hand, keeping close by, keeping an intimate relationship and fellowship now, he says This is what you're to do. Present yourselves now for, or therefore now to God. Let's think about this just very practically for a minute before we move on. So oftentimes we, in our struggle with sin as Christians, we we know we're saved, we know what is true, And yet we also know this very real struggle that's going on. And I think part of the reason why we continue to struggle without victory is that we struggle on our own strength. We don't start in what has already been accomplished for us and who we already are. 
we go try to conquer our sin on our own strength, okay? It's part of it. But the second part of that is, since we do that, our struggle with sin wears us out. And, and, it, and it causes us to feel like, I'll never have victory over this, so therefore, I'm not going to fight. We slip into complacency. We begin making excuses for ourselves. Like, well, everybody sins. I mean, how many times do you hear somebody confessing sin and they start with, well, but everybody sins. Right, but that's not the point, right? We're either owning our sin or not. Yeah, but everybody messes up. And we make light of it in an attempt, what, to, to make us feel better about our complacency towards us. Christian, listen. There is no room for complacency towards sin. No room at all. The point Paul is making here is not give up and just believe and everything's going to happen. He says, start in what is true. Start in that foundation, right? But the evidence that you're in Christ is that there is a struggle. If there's no struggle, that's when you need to be alarmed, right? The the fact that now you see the law differently and you want to be like the law, you want to be like God, that's evidence alone, right, that God's working in you. The struggle is the evidence. Don't disengage in the struggle, okay? What does the struggle look like? It looks like what Paul just said, presenting yourselves to God, keeping close at hand the things of God. What did, say, what did Jesus do in combating Satan and temptation? He kept God's word in his heart. And he restated what is true. How can you keep God close by? How can you stay close by God? Staying in his word. God's word is a very powerful, transforming thing. As you hear God's word speak into you, it reaches into the depths of who you are and works on you and shows you things, convicts you, it reminds you of what is true. So what we're doing today in a sermon really should be our daily devotion, right? Starting with what is true. Who am I in Christ? You want a you life transformational devotional study? Read Ephesians 1 and 2 all the way through verse 10. Do it on a daily basis for a full month. Read it and reread it and read it and reread it and just Allow God's word, his promises of what is true, wash over you and penetrate into the depths of who you are and it will transform your life. You could go to a number of other places in the word, right? That's the point. That's just one example. Why did I tell you to stop in verse 10? Because you don't get to any commands until verse 11 of chapter two. So chapter one, chapter two, verse 10, you'll experience, I believe, transformation to begin living out then these beautiful commands from God. Present yourself to God. make this uh, last statement here. Walking in freedom means letting go of the old you and the things that are familiar. Okay? I, I will hear this sometimes as an argument, like, you're keeping sin close by. Why are you doing that? Because I'm familiar with it. I don't know anything else. Right? Just like we talked about the American slavery. Like, I don't know how to live as a free man. Nobody's ever discipled me or taught me. Walking in freedom means letting go of the old you and the things that are familiar but deadly, and taking hold of the things that are new and uncomfortable that lead to life. This is why we must make disciples. This is the whole point. How do you walk with God, keep God close hand? You need to stay in his word, but you need to be in a discipleship relationship. Jesus said, go make disciples. He didn't just say, go disperse Bibles. He said, go make disciples of the nations. Teach them, explain to them, show them. In your struggle with sin, many of you have never been in a discipleship relationship. That's why we do life groups here. That's why our life groups next weekend are going to talk about what we learned this weekend. We're going to wrestle through it this week. Then we're going to talk amongst ourselves. How does this look? How can, we, how can we strive towards this? How can we encourage one another in this? How can we hold each other accountable in this? Discipleship relationships is an essential part of your struggle with sin. In my struggle with sin, the Bible instructs me, if you're taking notes, to present myself to God instead of returning to who I used to be by giving sin control over my life. Proverbs 26, 11 says, you know what that's like? That's like a dog that returns to his vomit. That's pretty disgusting. It's in the Bible. Peter quotes it. That idea that I'm going back to sin and being reshackled and picking the handcuffs, 
up and putting them back on is like a dog returning to his vomit. If you've had a dog, you know what it looks like for a dog to vomit. Isn't it disgusting? What, what do you do? Like, I have more food. I'll feed you. Why are you, why are you re-eating right, what you've just thrown up? The Bible says, you know what? That's, that's like when we return to sin. We're like a, a dog that returns to his vomit. We've been set free from it. We go right back to it. It's that disgusting. Let's jump to verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to, we've got to get to this word, sanctification. What? That's in the Bible? I thought that was just a churchy word. No, it's in the Bible. Love the word sanctification. It's a difficult word to fully comprehend and understand. It's a word that implies both process and the end result. What's the process? Being conformed to the image of Christ. Becoming more and more what I already am. Moving away from sinfulness towards holiness. Moment by moment, day by day, victory by victory. It's a process of sanctification. It also implies the result that we would become sanctified, set apart, now holy. If you're in Christ, you're in the process of being sanctified, conforming to the image of Christ. I want you to hear something that Paul says from, a flip, from Philippians um, chapter 1, verse 6. Popular verse. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Have you ever heard that verse? Paul is talking to the church. I'm convinced of this. I'm sure of this, that he, being Jesus, who began this work in you, he's going to be faithful to bring it to completion when? Do Do we memorize that part of the verse? At the day of Jesus Christ, at his return. Paul said very honestly and plainly, right now I... I see in part, and I know in part, one day I shall see fully. This is where the Apostle Paul can, in one breath, be honest about his struggle with sin, but in another breath, call us to wake up. Call us towards holiness. I believe the Apostle Paul was a man who understands what it is to struggle in the sin, but didn't excuse himself to indulge in it. I want to end this part of what we're going to do this morning, and then we're going to roll into communion, have a time of communion and reflection. Just a few questions that um, you have there in your Connect Guide for you to think on. And if you're in Life Group, I encourage you to think through these questions and answer them, and, and this will be part of what we discuss next weekend. But let's just talk very honestly, and you just answer these to yourself. Do you ever feel like you are losing the battle with a specific sin? Or have you ever felt that way? Like, I'm losing the battle with a specific sin. Let me ask this, has there ever been a time or a sin in your life that you felt the need to hide? Why do we hide sin? One, because of shame. Two, because we feel like we can't overcome it, so we hide it. Three, have you ever found yourself trying harder to overcome a specific sin only to find yourself failing more? The harder you try, the more you seem to fail. Let me ask a question about your belief and your faith. In what ways do you struggle to believe that the riches of God's grace are more abundant than the debt of your sin? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that where sin has increased in your life, God's grace outran it, was deeper, went beyond, and abounded? If you don't believe that, you don't believe the gospel. Okay? So I want to ask that question for you to think about. In what ways do you struggle to believe the gospel? And this last question, are you willing to obey God's instruction? What was his instruction? Quit presenting yourself to sin and now present yourself to God. Right? Quit keeping sin at hand's reach and now move closer to God. Keep God's word. Keep discipleship relationships. Keep right your spiritual growth at hand's reach, close by. And then what was the next one? To remember. Remember what Christ has accomplished on your behalf and remember who you are in him. Now, what we're going to do now is um, we're going to move to a time of communion and reflection. If you're a regular attender with us, this is the end of our service. We always give you room to respond. 
Um, we have prayer partners at the front and back who are here and prepared to pray with you and talk with you about maybe what God has been stirring in your heart. Um, the front will be open to come kneel and pray, but today, as we will do on the first Sunday of the month, um, we're going to take communion together. Okay, And so what, what we're going to do is I'm going to look um, at 1 Corinthians 11, the command of Jesus on why we are to take communion. I'm going to ask the um, worship team to come back up. And so once they start playing and singing, you're free to respond. Okay, And maybe for you, you just need to go be alone and pray. We want you to feel free to go do that. We have three prayer rooms over here on the left. If you go into one, somebody's in there, just back out and go to another one. You're free to come down and pray. You're free to grab a prayer partner. And when you're ready, okay, once you've taken time to really reflect on um, this command to remember, then, then you or you and your family, however you want to do it, are free to come get communion at your own timing. You can take it back to your seats. Um, you can take it up here. Um, not every, you're not obligated to take it. Okay, So we're going to allow this to be your response to the gospel this morning. So what I want to do now is um, I want to pray as our worship team comes back up, and then I'm going to read a couple of verses, and we're going to move to our time of reflection. Let's pray together. Um, Father, thank you for uh, the clarity this morning that our struggle with sin um, is, is not a struggle that, um, that can't have victory, but it is still very real. And thank you for showing us this morning that our strength to overcome sin comes from a deepening knowledge of what is already true on our behalf. And Father, for many of us, we came to know you at an early age, and so the gospel was very real in that moment, but since then we've dismissed it. We've dismissed the gospel as something we no longer need to think about or to read about. And yet today, our very real struggle and spiritual growth hinges on us deepening in our comprehension and remembering of what you've done for us on the cross. So as we sang other, earlier, lead me to the cross, I pray, God, you would lead each one of us to the cross of Christ. We pray this in his name.